thank you for the revelation that you've given us, your grace and your mercy that you've extended to us, Father. Lord, with grateful hearts, Lord, we, we thank you for these things, Father. We know that it's not man's doing, Lord, or our own abilities, or our own, uh, Lord, achievements, Lord, that we've merited any good thing from you, Lord, but it's just your love and your, your, your grace and your mercy to us. And Lord, and we accept all these things, Father. We, we don't reject your mercy or your grace. We invite even more of it, Lord, for we need it each day as we live this life. We thank you, Lord, for the many blessings you've bestowed upon us, Lord. We pray for these, our brethren, Lord, that Brother Burley, Lord, and for this young lady, Lord, who suffered a stroke, we pray, Lord, by an infinite grace and mercy, Lord, you'll touch them and restore them to good health again, Father, because you are more than able, Father, and we believe that you will, Lord, according to your word. We pray and we commit the rest of the service into your hands, everything that's said and done. We pray you will receive glory and praise. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have your seats for just a little while. And like I said, don't want to take up too much time, so we'll go ahead and invite our pastor to come forward. Amen. As he's making his way, we'll just sing a couple of worship songs. Amen. Get our hearts ready for the word. And let's just sing that song, Had on My Heart, I Bless Your Name. I in prisoner's chains, in bleeding strife. Silas prayed that night, and in their pain began to see their chains were loose and they. I bless your name and I give you honor, give you praise. You are the life, the truth, the way, and I bless your name I bless your name some midnight hour, if you should find you're in a prison in your mind reach out and
opportunity we had to be able to come together today in your name and to be able to worship you in freedom, in peace, in spirit, and in truth. Now, Lord, I pray you take this service tonight. Blessed, I pray, everything that's done. May, Lord, it bring honor and glory to you. We thank, Lord, of the many folks in our own assembly that are not well, the needs and burdens that we carry. We commit them all to you. But Lord, we especially pray for the folks tonight in Ukraine and other parts of the world that are oppressed and, Lord, experiencing great difficulty. Father, you're a God of the bride, and we believe, Lord, that you care for her no matter where she is and what she's going through. We call upon you tonight, Lord, to bless them and bring your strength and your victory to them, Lord, and, and may they just have that hand of protection upon them. We commit them to you in the name of Jesus Christ, and for your glory we pray. Amen and amen. Shake somebody's hand close by and say, God bless you, pilgrim. And you may be seated tonight. Thank you, musicians. We'll let you take your places just for a moment here. And we welcome all of you to the house of the Lord tonight. Appreciate you coming back and uh, being with us here this evening. We welcome all the folks that are online tonight as well and uh, listening in. And uh, we know that there's uh, a lot of interest, a lot of people uh, reference uh, these services later on and archive them, and uh, there's a lot of interest for our brethren in uh, the area of Ukraine, and uh, so we're glad to make this uh, presentation possible tonight. Uh, I want to say this, that this is not a promotional effort. We're not trying to raise money or anything else. We just really wanted to give you a glimpse of what it's like in Ukraine today. Uh, we wanted you to be able to see uh, from firsthand witnesses and people who uh, have lived there or visited there recently. Uh, I was trying to make a connection to Ukraine this evening to have one of the brothers in Ukraine to speak uh, and couldn't make that connection. So unless we can arrange that, uh, we probably won't have that tonight. But uh, we do have people who have been there and they're going to share some of their uh, testimony and their experiences of, of being in the uh, land of Ukraine. And uh, the, uh, the area has gone through great changes over the last uh, four or five months, and uh, this is the city of Donetsk, and uh, this has certainly uh, changed a lot uh, over these years. Beautiful city. This is, uh, I, I remarked that we were talking at lunch today, this was a picture of the airport. The airport was about two years old. Uh, beautiful place, flown in there many, many times, and uh, this is the uh, this is the condition that the airport is in today, and uh, it's quite sad, quite striking, and uh, 
it's just amazing what they've uh, been through in the last few years. And so uh, we wanted to uh, just take a little bit of time tonight to uh, just share with you what uh, things are like in that part of the world. And um, <clears throat> I want to make available tonight, if we have time at the end, uh, for questions. So if you have questions, uh, we'll try to uh, carve out a little time in the end. And then for people online, if they want to email me or text me, uh, they can send a question in or go to our church website. If you're on the website already, they can uh, email through there and we'll pick it up and, and get it conveyed. So uh, that's, um, that's one way we have to communicate this evening. Um, we appreciate the opportunities that we have had, and I say we as a church, to be able to be a conduit for lots of funds that have gone over uh, to the people in Ukraine. And um, a lot of it happened because I knew enough people, having traveled there, and knew enough for the people on the Ukraine side. But then, more importantly, there are people who are on the American side or European side who have helped us to be able to get money into there. Uh, so it's one thing to know the people in there, but to get through the barriers and be able to get money in there. Uh, we have someone like Brother Sergei Luzanov, who's here tonight, and um, he and his son's, uh, son-in-law, Sergei, uh, knew very well how to get this done. The people in Poland who are from Ukraine, they knew very well how to get this money into there. So it was just connecting the dots that allowed us to be able to get uh, the funds through. So uh, by God's grace, we've had three uh, teams of people in different places and been able to channel money through uh, Ukraine, through Russia, uh, through Europe, Eastern Europe, and to be able to get funds in there. Brother Aaron Ngamaza from our church, uh, he also is very familiar with banking and how that all operates, and he was a great help in helping us get uh, funds through and uh, they understand cryptocurrency a little bit better than I do, and we were able to shoot money uh, like within a half hour, within 30 minutes, to be able to get funds into the bank accounts of people in other parts of the world. It's just amazing, actually, how it, how it operates. And so, um, you know, it, it, I, I play a little part. I feel like I'm a dot connector, uh, but I, our hats go off to people like Brother Sergey and Brother Aaron, uh, different ones who have helped, uh, you know, to be able to get this done. And then I wanted to make sure that we were accountable so that we had proof that the funds were being received in that part of the world and not just assuming that. So, uh, Jeremy, I don't know if we can, there we go. Here's one family over there. Сергею Лузанову, да, нашему тоже брату, и всем братьям и сестрам, которые принимали участие в пожертвовании, и эта помощь, которую мы получили, была своевременна. Спасибо вам огромное. Спасибо за помощь. Спасибо. Мы очень вам признательны и благодарны, и молимся за вас, благодарим вас, благодарим Господа что у нас есть на другом континенте такие сестры, братья. Хотелось бы, конечно, больше ну, друг друга видеть и общения. Спасибо вам огромное. Пускай Бог вас обильно благословит, благословит и даст все вам по сердцу вашему. Мы очень рады, что у нас теперь есть такая семья, семья святых. Спасибо вам огромное. Божье благословение вам. Еще раз повторимся. 
всех благ и, и будьте благословенны. Будьте благословенны. Слава Богу. So uh, that's one family. I've never met that family, but they know me over there as Barry Coffee, C-O-F-F-E-E. -E. That's okay. That's all right. I'll go for that. And, uh, you know, they're, they're the kind of people, many of them expressed to me that they were overwhelmed that we would, we would remember them, that we would do this for them. And they're saying in these videos, we're praying for you. That's what they're saying. We're praying for you. And, uh, but that's the kind of people they are. There are people who have known hardship, uh, they've, uh, uh, lived in a sense in a, uh, hard environment for many, many years and have struggled. The governments there are not exactly very cooperative. And, uh, so it's not a great environment. And, uh, we're thankful, uh, for, again, for the opportunities to be able to help and support them. And, uh, <clears throat> I, I just, uh, even though we'll probably never meet a lot of those people on this side, on the other side, we will. And I will guarantee you that they, uh, they will show their appreciation. Now, Brother Sergei Luzanov uh, is with us tonight, and his wife and uh, his son um, Oleg, who is here, lives in North Carolina. And uh, they have a son-in-law whose name is also Sergei uh, Gridazov. And I'm not probably saying that right, but that's close, close. And uh, in Russia, you can have a lot of latitude in pronouncing the language because so, it's, it's a, not an easy language. But uh, Brother Sergei uh, was a, uh, a banker uh, and very knowledgeable in international banking in Ukraine when he lived over there. And now he lives over here uh, and operates in Brother Paul Hale's church in Idaho and drives one of those car-carrying trucks, you know, the ones that deliver the cars to dealerships. And, uh, but very knowledgeable about banking. And he was just uh, a key person and has been a key person in helping to get uh, a lot of the funds actually channeled through into the country. So he's a guy I work with very closely, talk to him all the time. And uh, he's the one who helped orchestrate the 38 people uh, who got out of Donetsk. We got over the mountains and got them into Russia. Uh, he was the one that was the, kind of the, the, the cog in the wheel that uh, you know, help uh, arrange all of that, and then brought me into it, and then we we got it done very quickly. So, brother, uh, I asked brother Sergey if he would come tonight, and he was unable to because he's trucking somewhere, uh, somewhere else. I don't know where he's all over the country, but he made this little video from his truck today. He did this this morning, and uh, he just wanted to share a little bit about the work that he actually does with me and with his father-in-law and uh, the, the saints in Ukraine. He's very much connected. He was raised in Donetsk and from the church there. Uh, he considers Brother uh, Vladimir uh, his, uh, you know, a pastor, a very respected man of God. And so I asked him today just to uh, give us a little film clip, and, and he's just going to talk about a little bit about the work that we do. Uh, the sound quality is not great, but maybe we could turn it up enough to get there. But well, we appreciate Brother Sergei. He's probably listening, and uh, we're glad that he sent this along to us here today. God bless you, saints. My name is Sergei. I'm helping to send money overseas into Ukraine and Russia. I just want to give you some details about how it works and what we do. Uh, you know, banks in Ukraine and Russia are quite different from banks in the United States. 
you can easily lose your money. That's why we try to do it as safe as possible. Usually we send small amounts and we never send next portion before we receive confirmation from local brothers that they have received previous one. As you know, some parts of Ukraine are currently occupied by Russia and some parts of Ukraine have been under Russian control for many, many years, like Donetsk city where I came from originally. So the way how we send money there is quite different. As soon as uh, Russia takes control in some region, it's understandable, Ukrainian banks stop working there. And in the same time, Russian bank system is under European sanctions, so you cannot send just a regular wire transfer into Russia. That's why we start using cryptocurrency. We buy stablecoin here, then we send it over into a different platform that is certified to work in Russia and only then we can cash it out in local Russian ruble. I know it sounds complicated, but it works really, really good for us. And I can say conditions are changing every single week, but God is faithful. Every single time when one door is closed, God opens another door. If there is a need somewhere, God always provides the way how to reach people there. I'm sure you read and saw many testimonies from Ukrainian believers, but I can tell you, I can assure you, it's just a small portion. There are much more. Not everyone can record video, not everyone can write a text in their circumstances. They still have issues, they still have uh, problems, war is going on in their cities, in their villages. So as for today, we have uh, 162 families in our list and every single month brothers reach every single family to make sure that have they have everything they need just the basic needs believers by food believers by medicine believers by just the basic supply i can say that for most of them this help is the only one source of income you know using these funds believers were able to flee from uh, unsafe zones even more without your help since some young brothers could have ended up in an army. It's so serious right now in Ukraine. I grew up in Ukraine, so it's, it's close to home for me. And I would like to say thank you. It means a lot for Ukrainian believers. God bless you. As he said in the beginning, when the Russians come in and take over a portion of Ukraine, all of the Internet shuts down and the banking system ceases to operate. And so everything then has to switch. They have to uh, adapt to that to be able to send funds in another way. And Brother Sergei, like he said, a door closes and God opens up another one. And we do this almost every day. Every day we have contact. They have 162 families, he said, that's on the list. I have the list here tonight. And they contact those people continually to make sure that uh, the needs are being met because many times that's the only income they have is the funds that come through Brother Sergey and uh, the brothers over there and is channeled through the pipeline. And so uh, it's just amazing. Some of them don't have Internet or good Internet, uh, or they had to pay for the Internet. It's expensive. And so they're not able to send their testimonies and thanks. But 
uh, we try to get some here for you and, uh, you know, get them uh, on the website or the WhatsApp so that you can see them. Brother Sergey connects with Brother Kostia, and Brother Kostia is uh, just a key person inside Ukraine. He will be here in a couple of weeks to visit uh, the country. We're going to have him come here. He said he wanted to come to Hickory and shake my hand. And uh, he is just a really special brother and uh, just uh, been a fantastic help. And he's the one who actually picks up the phone and calls these 162 families or more all the time to make sure that uh, the monies are received and they, do they need more? Uh, is there some other way we can help? And he's just a very faithful brother. Brother Sergei, why don't you come on? And uh, uh, his son uh, tonight, Brother Oleg, if you would come and uh, we're going to uh, share the pulpit here uh, this evening, and we're just going to let you come on over here. God bless you, Brother Sergey. Good to have you, Brother Oleg. God bless you. Come on, come on over here on this side right here, on, on this side right here. Yeah, and use that microphone. And uh, Brother Oleg's going to interpret uh, for us a little bit tonight here so that uh, we can move this conversation along here. Uh, Brother Sergey, we've known each other for many years, and uh, he is from Donetsk, but he was born in Siberia, and his father was a political prisoner in Siberia, and uh, his mother migrated up to Siberia to be with him in the early years in the 50s, and then he was born in Siberia up there, and uh, eventually wound up coming away from Siberia and down eventually into Ukraine. So... Um, we want to welcome you to Hickory, and uh, we want to say that we appreciate all your help for the Ukrainian people. Now, Donetsk was your church. Yes. That, that was your assembly before you left Ukraine. Yes. Tell us, tell us how things are today in Ukraine. We've seen a few pictures. Tell us a little bit about Ukraine today. Donetsk. Uh, so Ukraine is a, a really big country. So if you take the western part, and if we just look at the central part of Ukraine, where we have a lot of friends and we, we keep in touch with them all the time, so they're doing pretty good over there, I guess. It's more or less calm. So what goes for the eastern part of Ukraine? So a lot of uh, Christians, they left that area to like more safer parts of Ukraine. So a lot of them would like to uh, go to Poland or maybe somewhere in Europe where they'll be safer. So because of the, um, the war situation, 
И люди, от, мужчины от 18 лет до 60 лет, они не имеют права покинуть территорию страны. So uh, men, all the males uh, from 18 up to 60 are not allowed to leave the country. Поэтому очень много семей и из Донецка в том числе, из другой, из других городов восточной части Украины. So uh, a lot of families also from, uh, from, from Donetsk and other parts of the Ukraine. Они, они сейчас находятся на западной части Украины, потому что у них нет шансов покинуть эту страну, Украину. They are staying in the western part of Ukraine because they cannot, they, they won't be allowed to leave the country, even though they'd like to. Если говорить об экономической части, какая экономическая ситуация на территории Украины, So, just a couple words about what's going on economically in Ukraine. То она очень тяжелая. It's a very uh, unstable, hard, like hardship. Потому что задерживают с выплатой пенсии. Because the pension payments are, uh, are like far behind, they're, uh, they're not keeping up with the payments. For the larger families or like, let's say, welfare payments, they're all behind, they're not being uh, paid out by the government. They just don't have the... Uh, Everything is diverted to the war effort, yeah, I think, yeah. yeah. Цены на продукты питания намного дороже, чем в этой стране, чем в Америке. So, uh, like, uh, food and other goods, they are more expensive than they are here in, in, in the States right now. Wow. И если говорить о пенсии, люди пожилые, которые получают пенсию с Украины. So, if we talk about the uh, people retired, they can't collect pension. Они сейчас приравниваются где-то 50 от 50 до 100 долларов максимум. So uh, the pensioners or the people that collect pensions, their whole payment is maybe about 100 dollars, about a max of 100 dollars a month. При при том, что цены на бензин и на продукты питания выше, чем здесь. And that's taken into account that gas prices are higher and food prices are higher than they are here. И вы можете теперь судить, какая там экономическая ситуация. So now you can judge for yourself what kind of economics okay, are so going on over there. How do you do that? If you have $100 a month, how do you feed your family and buy what you need? Очень, очень многие верующие, как и, и вот мы видео видели, So a lot of Christians, and as we already seen over here in the videos, мы имеем контакт постоянно с верующими людьми, с пасторами и с многими верующими людьми, которые нам нам говорят. So we stay in close touch with uh, pastors and different families, just constantly talking and uh, staying in contact with them. И они говорят, если бы не ваша помощь, у нас не было бы шансов как-то выжить. And they, also, so the, and, and they all say that if it wasn't for your help, there is no way we would have survived this. Wow. So that's the reality of today. Wow. So uh, with the winter getting closer, Украина, она не имеет газа, чтобы отапливать зимний сезон пройти. So Ukraine doesn't have its own gas supply where they could make it through the winter. И некоторые братья мне говорят, они uh, сейчас uh, заготавливают дрова. 
So uh, some of the brothers, they're telling me they're uh, piling up some wood and other things. Because wow. some of them can't leave their churches. Because, uh, because if they do leave, nobody's going to take care of the elders or just of the, uh, of the community, the little church they have there. So there are pastors who are staying just to make sure that the elderly are cared for yeah, and the people. That's wow. exactly how it is. So most of the gas comes from Russia, traditionally, in, in the past. Before war. Before the war. Mm-hmm. Wow, and there's not many other suppliers of gas in that part of the world. So that's how it that's how it looks today. Wow. But and and everybody who ever, uh, who we talk to are very grateful to Brother Barry Coffey and other saints that are being part of this and helping support the people over there. And just a common phrase they all say is, "If it wasn't for this help, we have no. Uh, there'd be no way we would have survived." Wow. And they say they, they can't find the words to, uh, to, uh, just, uh, to really uh, make them, they can't find the words needed to uh, express their feelings. There are some people who, uh, believers who live in Zaporozhia, and Zaporozhia is very close to this nuclear plant that they're trying to protect, right? If that, if that blows, I mean if that explodes... That, that adds another element of trouble for that part of the world, right? I mean, that's a huge facility. Extremely dangerous. They're just praying and, uh, that God will lead yeah. them through this whole situation. There's nothing else. They understand how in what kind of danger they're living in, but they can't do anything. Can't do anything about it. Really. Yeah. So in Donetsk, do bombs fall every day? Bombs come every day. They don't know where or when. And that's just the reality of Donetsk. And, and there's really not many places to go, to hide. So there's no place where you can be safe today. Wow. Mm-hmm. So this already happened in 2015. So this already happened in 2015 when a shell landed right to of Brother Vladimir Dabov's church and it blew out seven windows. So, so that's kind of what's going on there. But there's still church going on there today. 40 or 50 people there still yes. today. Yes, that's amazing. There's about 50 people that still gather there. Yeah. And Brother Vladimir is still there to help care for those people and 
Yes, whoever could stay, they stayed in there in that church. Uh, families with little children, they, whoever could, they left, yep. but right. everybody else stayed. Because it's hard to explain to little children why they have to run and hide and yeah. seek shelter. Okay, uh, I have a thousand questions, but I would just like to ask you <laughs> one more thing and say, if you could say one thing to all of us about the, the, the people in Ukraine today, what would you what would you uh, ask us to do? To pray for them? We do. To send financial support? We try to as much as we can. What else would you say on behalf of the people in Ukraine? We just need to pray that uh, God will lead him through this and help him stay faithful to God. Because of, like, materials, materially-wise, everybody, uh, nobody's uh, left behind. We try to stay in touch. So only God can uh, guide the people through these situations. Like, like Job said, I will come out uh, purer than gold. Yes. Amen. Wonderful. Thank you, Brother Sergei. We have uh, an offering that we're going to give. I, I, we send an offering to Brother Sergei uh, regularly for him to put in the pipeline to go to mm -hmm. the people of Ukraine. This includes that uh, $2,000 that this church in Fayetteville uh, gave me to give to you. I don't know who they are, never met them, but they found out online that uh, we were working with the people in Ukraine, so they uh, are sending that money. So this, is, this includes that, and uh, this is the money that we put in the works to go to Brother Kostya and to the believers over there. So uh, we appreciate all your good work. God bless you, my brother. Thank you, Brother Thank you. Yep. Wonderful. Wonderful. We're going to invite Sister April to come, and uh, she's going to share a little bit about her experiences inside Ukraine. Uh, she was asked by uh, Samaritan's Purse, which is the uh, benevolent arm of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, to uh, operate in their um, facility over there, a field hospital, emergency field hospital uh, that they established uh, over in Ukraine. And Sister April is one of the people, probably one of the only uh, people uh, in the Bride of Christ who would be eminently qualified to go and work in such a location and be able to do surgery and just about anything else medically. And uh, we had an interesting conversation at lunch, uh, you know, talking about uh, her experiences there. Uh, she's probably got a day or two's worth of stories to tell, uh, meeting the people there and actually, you know, doing hands-on stuff with the people. Uh, but we're honored to have her uh, with us today, and uh, she's going to share a little bit with a PowerPoint about her experiences in Ukraine. Sister April. Thank you, Brother Barry. Um, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about this experience. Um, we always go to these places to help, and you come away with so much more than anything you think you left for them. Can you hear me okay? This is better. Okay. And actually, maybe I will step over here. I was a little scared to come to the pulpit, but I can see the slides here a little better. 
And you can swipe here too, so. Okay. If you want to do that, okay? Yeah. Just swipe. I'll do that. Um, so just my introduction, I went to Ukraine in um, April and May of this last year. And just a little bit about me. Um, most of you here at Hickory do know me and know about my very long journey. I'm a trauma surgeon and a surgical critical care intensivist. It took me about 17 years there, if you add that all up, um, for the amount of education. I know um, Brother Jonathan knows exactly what this means. It's a very long road and actually took me a little longer than that because I had a few detours, but that's how it all adds up. And Brother Barry and Sister Becky um, have been there for me through all of these years, and that is much appreciated, and the church here as well. Um, I have to... Uh, oh. I wasn't supposed to show first, but um, that's sort of how I got here. I found this picture on the Internet, and I absolutely loved it because um, the training sounds wonderful and it sounds exciting what I do, but I have to tell you this is what I felt like most of the time. And this photo actually just won some sort of first-place award, and I was reminded of Brother Branham's story about the pond lily, and I just loved this photo, and it was a sunflower, and it seemed appropriate for this um, talk. So it started in January of this year. I had been um, seeking from the Lord uh, ways in which I might serve him and use this skill set. I finished all of my training about four years ago and have been working in Atlanta, Georgia, at the big trauma center in downtown Atlanta, and really started laying on my heart last summer of how could I use this skill set and how could I be more available for the Lord. And um, I was at a surgical conference in Austin, Texas, in January and stumbled across the Samaritan's Purse booth and I don't know if anybody appreciates how odd it is to have a faith-based organization at a secular surgical conference, but it was novel. And I walked up to them, and I was like, what are you guys doing here? And um, I don't know how they snuck in. <laughs> so um, they have a disaster assistance response team, and they were there recruiting for that. And it is basically the humanitarian aid arm of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association that goes internationally to all types of disasters earthquakes, tsunamis, Haiti. They've been around the world, Iraq. Um, and if you go on their webpage, you can see that. And so I was like, this is interesting. I've been praying about this. And is this you, Lord? And so when I got back home from the conference, I was like, well, I'll apply. Let's see what happens. We'll, we'll walk towards the door and see if it opens. And it did open. And Brother Barry was actually instrumental in helping me sort of navigate some of those waters. And I was officially hired onto the team on February 18th, having no idea what was going to happen. And then as we all know, the war started on February 24th, so six days later. And these images started coming out on CNN and all the different news agencies and Kiev was being shelled and then Mariupol images and then the mass graves and Bucha and the Azovstal steel plant. And I was asking the Lord, almost smiling, I'm like, are you really going to send me to a conflict zone as my first deployment? And I was wondering if Samaritan's Purse would go. And then simultaneously, Brother Barry began sending images of the believers. And these just um, really hit home for me because these aren't just random people, not that all life isn't important, but these are our brothers and sisters. These are people who, who we will spend eternity with. And it really just hit me. And I know I have a skill set to go into a trauma zone and be able to help people, not only physically, but also the counseling and understanding of some of the things they've gone through. And the Lord just really laid this on my heart. So I stayed in close contact with Samaritan's Purse, and they called me 
Um, the call went out on March 1st, are you available? And I immediately responded and said yes. And then on March 8th, they called me and said, would you go? And I said yes. So that made me, um, that led to a month of planning and I deployed on April 12th, um, flew into Poland to Krakow. And because there are no flights going into and out of Ukraine right now, the skies are not safe, we bust across the border. And so we drove from Krakow to Lviv. It's about a four to five hour drive, depending on the border crossing. This is our bus here that we went on. And as soon as I arrived in Lviv to the campus there where Samaritan's Purse was at, um, we went through a security briefing. And it was very interesting and very eye-opening to talk about things like air raids and what do mines look like and what do bombs look like and where do you go and um, things along that line. So things that civilians don't usually do. I have no military experience, um, nor is that in my family. So I knew I was going to get into that, but this was when things started hitting home. And of course, you know, the other piece of our life that was a very large piece for the month I was there was all of the air raid alerts and knowing where to go and what to do when they happened. And so Samaritan's Purse the Ukrainian um, government has an app that all the Ukrainians have, but I didn't want to download that because there's no way to silence it. <laughs> and so Samaritan's Purse um, set up a signal group and they would send us all of the alerts. So we all knew when to go take cover and this is what they looked like every time it went off. And they went off frequently. So this became a big part of our daily life and our daily routine. Samaritan's Purse had set up a emergency field hospital um, at the request of the Ministry of Health of Ukraine. None of the humanitarian aid organizations can go in unless they have an invitation from the Ministry of Health. And so the Ministry of Health had asked Samaritan's Purse to set up this emergency field hospital. And actually Samaritan's Purse is well known in the humanitarian aid world for being able to deploy this hospital within 48 to 72 hours anywhere in the world. And so they came in and set this up within the first week of the conflict. We were in a parking garage of a shopping mall in Lviv. And the EFH is completely independent from the grid. It has its own generators. It has its own water supply. Everything is completely detached from the infrastructure as needed so that they can deploy to any location around the world. And it's giant tents. And so the top picture is um, a photo of the emergency room. And this is the triage area. Let's see if I can make this work. Oh, maybe. Let's see. There it is, okay. Um, so this is the emergency room right here, the tent for the emergency room. This is the triage area here. So patients would walk in some giant double doors here, go into the triage where there'd be a couple of nurses and translators, and then into the emergency room. This is my operating room, <laughs> the outside of it, and then this is the entrance inside the parking garage. They had put tarps around one corner of the parking garage, so we're completely separated, and they hired armed guards for the entire time. So the campus was secure at all times. This is what it looked like, so we truly were camping. This is the female tent where I spent um, every night sleeping with all of my fellow female co-workers. Um, this is Sasha, who was one of the caterers that served the food here, and you can see we had lots and lots of food. They do not starve you while you're over there, even in war. Um, this is a picture of the generators, which piped warm air. This is still cool when I went over there, um, and then... We had porta potties. That was the bathroom, and then the sort of um, showers that you see here. And so this was the setup for the month that I was there. 
I was able to go out. Um, when I arrived on April 12th, there was a general surgeon there that I was relieving, and we had about four or five days was overlap, which was nice, because then I was able to get the lay of the land and how things were going to work. And right before he left, he said, you need to go out or you're not going to be able to leave the campus again, because they didn't want the only surgeon leaving the campus in case an emergency would come in. And so I went out on Sunday, April 16th, which I believe was Catholic Easter or Orthodox Easter. I can't remember which one came first. And uh, was able to go about the city, had lunch in the city, and went to a couple of places. I went to the train station where Samaritan's Purse, uh, excuse me, this is the bus station where Samaritan's Purse had a small tent set up and a clinic. A lot of the internally displaced people were coming through the bus station, and so this is where we would help a lot of them from a medical standpoint. This sign was there. I thought it was very touching at the time, and so I've I've kept a picture of this as well. Um, And then this is one of the pictures I actually took from the website. I had trouble taking pictures there just personally because there's still a lot of hurt. There were lots of people coming through the bus station that day, actually. Um, They're very upset. There were people crying at the different places. And you can just see the look of stress and anxiety on their faces um, as they're trying to flee. This is some of the upstairs area, and they literally have mattresses set up for all the people who are fleeing. Um, And it is very interesting. Their suitcases are there, all the things that they came with. And this is sort of what these places looked like. The other place I visited, and um, it's probably familiar if you've watched any of the news closely, is the Lviv train station. And this has gotten a lot of publicity. It's become very iconic as a symbol of the refugees and the IDPs that were fleeing, IDPs being internally displaced. Um, and this is the train station where all the people come off, and I was able to visit there. It wasn't very busy on the Easter, even though inside was quite busy, and people had their luggage and were staying there as well. This is the stairs where you see them all coming down, and then Samaritan's Purse also had a tent set up there. I did not staff these. These are generally staffed by emergency room physicians or family practice physicians, um, and they saw all kinds of things from wounds and high blood pressure to anxiety, diabetes, um, and just treated uh, flu, all those kind of things that um, dehydration um, that people coming off the trains who had been traveling for a long period of time might have need of. I got a couple surgical referrals from these tents, mostly related to wound care for people who weren't able to get adequate wound care as they were traveling. The day after I went on my tour, on Monday, Lviv had probably the worst set of missile strikes that we had while I was there. There were multiple casualties, and it actually hit at the train station. And so that was very sobering to me, and it kind of hit home because there's a bit of surrealness to the whole thing to think that you could actually be in danger and then to have these strike just a few hundred feet from where I had been was quite sobering. And it's also the reality of so many of the other people that are in the country at that time. And so this was very sobering. I think I was very thankful to the Lord for his protection, but also thankful that I've been able to see a little bit of Ukraine besides just the parking garage. And so grateful for the Lord's protection. Um, And then just the reality of war really hit home after that. So what were things actually like at the emergency field hospital itself? This is actually the inside of the operating room tent. And so here we are setting up for an operation on one of our patients. And um, for anybody who has been in the OR, it is very similar. We have our OR table, OR nurse. All our stuff is ready to go. Anesthesia is getting the patient to sleep. 
And we ran into just a very nice routine as we went along of um, operating in the morning. We'd schedule two to three, four cases was about as much as we could handle um, per day. That's all the bandwidth we had to do. And then in the afternoon, I would see patients all day long in a, a like pseudo clinic. And basically, I would see them for surgical problems from wound care to hernias to um, sebaceous cysts to infections and abscesses. Um, so very basic sort of general surgery, bread and butter kind of stuff. Um, as you can see in the top right-hand corner here, this is Rachel. She was one of my um, OR nurses and OR scrubs. She's cleaning the instruments, and I only had two nurses there. So this is why we had a limited bandwidth, because they not only had to do the operating with, room with me, they also had to re-sterilize all the equipment. And so we only had the capacity to do so much. We had the ability to mobilize more, so if we had been in a mass casualty situation or had airstrikes near us, we could have ramped up, but this is how we sort of kept it for the routine wound care and stuff like that that we had. One thing I really appreciated about being deployed with Samaritan's Purse is it is a faith-based organization, and they really do emphasize um, presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation to every single person who walks through that door. And that was really meaningful for me. And I actually learned a lot from it about just sharing the gospel to the people that are really hurting. And there were a lot of doors and opportunity. People were very needful of just that love and support, and it really gave an open door for a lot of ministry. There were many, as they would say, decisions for Christ, which I, I don't question. You don't know the people's heart at that time. And in fact, Anna here, who's standing here in this photo right here, and I'll talk about her a little more in a minute, as a medical student and actually made a decision for Christ while she was there. And I can tell you her heart was sincere. Like we had many good conversations and she would pray and cry with the patients that came in as well, often going back and ministering in their own language later. Um, she worked there as a nurse for us. Um, they had a, a reporter come out from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and did a little piece on the chaplains that were working there. And um, these are two photos where we, where we wound up in the, in the piece. It's actually a very good piece, and it's there if you want to read a little bit more about that ministry. Um, I'm going to tell you just about a couple of stories in particular and show a few photos. Um, but this is our daily life. This is the pre-op area where we would see the patients, and this patient's name was Mikola. And Mikola came in with what I thought was going to be a simple hernia repair and then ended up having some anatomic um, differences that I wasn't expecting. I actually wound up having to have three surgeries before we were able to finally get him fixed. He did very well through that time, and he's actually a, I think his rank was a captain in the Ukrainian army, but he was in reserve, so he wasn't actively deployed at that time. But he was expecting to be called up any day. He had already evacuated his family to Poland and hadn't seen them for six weeks by the time I met him. He was also not working at the time because, as you were saying, there's not a lot of employment in the country currently at the moment, I think due to the way that the resources are allocated. Um, so Mikola is also a believer and was very strong in his faith. And after his third surgery, and he's all better, he came back to thank us and brought a cake and some other things and um, got to be really good friends with the staff. So this is... Uh, one of his photos on a day he came back to thank us. And so really an inspiration to all of us. And this is Vladimir. Vladimir is a 54-year-old male. He was displaced from Mariupol. He, his wife, and his daughter fled. Um, I'm not sure at what point in the conflict they left. Um, but this was a very meaningful interaction for me. It's not super exciting, but for me personally was um, very meaningful. 
he came in for his pre-op. He had a hernia that he was wanting me to repair, and that's sort of bread and butter general surgery, and I was happy to do that for him. And a very serious person. Never smiled. You can see the weight of, of what he had gone through and the fleeing and all the things that had happened to him. They, they just carry it. I don't know how else to explain that. And he never smiled the whole time. I, his wife came with him the first time, and very serious folks went through his whole pre-op. You know, he's still very serious, very sober. Um, and then post-op, I went to see him. His surgery went well, and we're in post-op, and he's sitting up in this chair. And I just looked at him, and I know so little Russian-Ukrainian, but I just looked at him, I smiled, and I clapped my hands really big, and I was like, dobre, which means good, like good. You're out of bed, you're up, you look good. And he just looked at me and he smiled for the first time. And the chaplain was with me and was like, that's very, that's very special that he, he would smile. Um, he asked me to get a picture with him and I said, sure, I'll do that. Only, you know, if I can take a picture too with my camera. And so we both got our picture together. And I reached after we took the photo and this is the first photo um, we had. And then, you know, he sort of smiles after this. Um, I reached his hand because I, I was so touched by what had happened in Mariupol, and I think there's a lot that could be said there, and talking to Brother Sergei and different ones, um, there's so many angles and dynamics to that, but no matter how you look at it, it's a tragedy of what happened in that location. And it was a lot of my motivation, um, just watching some of those pictures and images of the suffering, to try to go and help, and he was the first patient I had had from Mariupol. And I just took his hand and I said, I just want you to know I'm praying for you and I'm praying for your country and for Mariupol every day. And he just looked at me and he was like, I said, I just wish I could do more. And he just took my hand and thanked me. And um, I got tears in my eyes and I had to kind of walk away. Later I came back and checked on him and he was talking to the chaplain and he was showing him a video that the BBC had done on he, his wife, and his daughter and how they had fled Mariupol. I can't find this video. I wish I could find it. Um, but his daughter and his wife were baking Pascha for Easter, the Pascha bread. And um, they were describing some of their experiences. And I just looked at him and he showed me the video and we looked at it and we chatted a little bit through the translator. And then he just grabbed my hands and he just said, you know, God bless you. And then he said, these are God's hands. And it was really one of the most humbling things because you really just go and you think you're going to do something exciting. And I thought I was going to do war trauma and you help these people. And we wound up doing very simple wound care and general surgery. And I, I came to see that this is where God had called me to be at that moment, just doing some basic, what I would consider very basic general surgery. And it was very humbling to see how people reacted to that simple act of love and the simple act of giving um, that we were able to do at the EFH. There are many, many other patients. Um, I have Lubov in the top left, Miroslav, Irina, Bodan, Oleksandra, Dimitro, Anatoly. I mean, there are, I, have, I have dozens and dozens of these photos. And they all became very meaningful to me. And they're people that have faces and voices. Anatoly down here in the bottom right-hand corner actually built his church with his hands, um, was very active in his church and came to tell me about it. Um, he and his brother did a lot of woodworking, and they showed it to me. It was extremely beautiful. Um, Dimitro in the middle down there is from Kharkiv, and he and his wife had fled um, there when the shelling and the bombing started in that region. 
And so many, many stories of the refugees and how they were displaced. And the last um, patient in particular I tell you about is Ivana. And Ivana was a 79-year-old lady who had been coming to the emergency field hospital even before I got there. Um, and she had a chronic leg wound. I'm not sure how she got it, but we had been doing wound care on it every week at the emergency field hospital. And she was eventually ready for skin grafting. So I prepared her for skin grafting, um, and we admitted her to the hospital for that. What I came to find out is that Ivana lived with her daughter-in-law, and they were both um, internally displaced people from Kiev. And her son was actually fighting in the Ukrainian military um, for the defense of Kiev at the time, which was still at that point under attack um, while I was there. They didn't withdraw from that area until a little bit later. When I admitted her for the skin graft, I reminded them that she was very high risk for failure based on her age and a couple other medical comorbidities that she had. Um, but the daughter-in-law recognized the need because this would make the wound care so much simpler. And so we did the skin graft. And once you do a skin graft, you leave it in place for about five days. You don't touch the dressing. You just leave it alone, and you just wait to make sure that that new skin that you put on there will take. <clears throat> that left to me, me five days to pray that the skin would take. <laughs> so there's nothing to do but wait and see. And while we were there, we took care of her. On the left hand, let's see, on your right hand side is one of our nurses, Jenny, who's actually from Australia. I met lots of people there from around the world that came to work with Samaritan's Purse. And Yenny is watching a worship video with Ivana. And somebody else one day was doing her hair, and we all just took care of her while she was there. And she loved it. And she got a little delirious, so we had to kind of nurse her through that. Um, but then she started to get better. So on day five, I went to take her graft down, and I had the dressing down. And I had told her family, I hope we get at least 50 to 60% of the graft we'll take. Um, if at least half of it takes, I'll feel really good about it in this environment with her age and all the other things. And as I took the dressing down, she had almost 100% take of the graft. And I, I just started crying as I thought about it because her daughter-in-law was standing with me there. The nurses are all standing with me. Everybody's very anxiously looking to see how it looks. And I just looked at them both and I said, this is not my doing. And I pointed to the sky and I said, this is the Lord. I said, the Lord is taking care of you. And then the daughter-in-law started crying and I cried and everyone was crying. We were all just thanking the Lord here in the middle of our tent and in the middle of Lviv. And I kept her two more days after that just to make sure that the graft would be okay. And it was still a little tenuous those first few days with dressing changes. They were anxious to get back to Kiev. Um, and so they had not heard from Ivana's son in over a week. And so they were very anxious to get back. So I discharged her um, after about a total of seven or eight days in the hospital with a good skin graft and very minimal wound care. And I watched her go, and she this is the last day here with the little purple scarf on her, and this is her daughter-in-law. And I, I felt so uncertain because I didn't know what I was sending her back to. You almost feel bad to know that you're sending her back to Kiev and what's happening, is her son still alive? And then I just remembered the skin graft, and I'm like, God is taking care of her. You know, and I was just honored to, to, to have some small role to play to relieve some of her worry and some of her suffering. And um, that was very special to me to know that God is able to use all of us in that manner. Um, and knowing that I don't know what the rest, what the next chapter is in her life, but I do know that God was looking out for her. 
There was lots of other ways in which um, we were able to minister, not just to the patients that came in, but we had um, lots of national staff in this story. These pictures always just make me smile. We had medical students who found out about the EFH um, via radio advertisement that Samaritan's Purse had done inside Lviv, and they came and volunteered to be medical translators. And also, depending on where they were at in their medical studies, we would let them work as nurses, um, not as physicians yet, but as nurses within the EFH. And so some were hired as translators, some as nurses, and we held weekly lectures for them. So the top um, picture is me um, giving a lecture to them one week, and they loved it. We pulled up boxes and camping chairs, whatever we had, and they would come, and we'd talk about some medical subject for an hour. And then on the last day of my um, trip there at the EFH, they surprised me with some flowers and a book and um, a nice card just kind of saying how much they appreciated everything. And so I still stay in touch with a lot of these folks. About a month after I left, which was the middle of May, they closed the emergency field hospital based on recommendations from the Ministry of Health because it was felt it wasn't necessarily needed in Lviv. And I think that that's probably an okay move. And they actually donated the EFH, the tents, and all of that equipment to Ukraine for Ukraine to use on the front line. And I don't know exactly where that equipment is, but that was all given to them. And it's sort of interesting. I don't know the finances of that, but flying at home is expensive, and so I think they just elected to donate that, and so they've actually given that to Ukraine to use. But what I think is really unique about the Holy FH and that experience is one of the medical students left this on her Facebook post, and I just want to share it because I think it sort of summarizes what we all felt. I won't read the whole thing, but she said, Today marks the end of a short but extraordinary period of my life. There are events that happen at the moment you need it most. And at that time in my life, a field hospital appeared. Honestly, it's hard to put into words how grateful I am for this opportunity. And she talks about her exposure to the um, Western medical professionals. And I say Western because they were Canadians, Americans, etc. And then she goes on and she says, I would also like to point out that this hospital had some magical atmosphere because I have never met such a caring and always smiling team. Surely all these people have already left a bright mark in my life, and I really hope that at least in part we will definitely meet once more. And I think that that really was the love that we were trying to share with the people that were there and witness to them about the gospel and about Christ, because that really was the center of our day every day there. One more thing I want to share with you, and I want to sort of talk about where is Ukraine today. And I'm going to update you about some of um, the things that I know that have happened since I've left there. And one of them I have to go back to that happened to me while I was there. So on May 7th, I was outside, and I was um, escaping from what we called it the dungeon dart. (laughs) And you can guess why. For a little bit of sunshine and vitamin D, so I came up for some air. And I was sitting at the McDonald's. McDonald's closed all of their restaurants when the war started just for the safety of the crew. However, they continued to pay them, by the way, which I think is very um, admirable. Um, And they're just getting ready to reopen all of their restaurants right now. But nonetheless, I was sitting at this empty McDonald's, and it was the one and only time that I got caught outside during one of the air raids. I'm going to try to play this, Brother Jeremy. If we can turn it up a little bit. Can you play it from the beginning?
So a couple of things. Um, first of all, it's I'm sitting at McDonald's outside of a shopping mall on a beautiful sunny blue sky day with green grass, and it's really hard to wrap your head around that you could be in a great deal of danger. I started walking immediately towards the parking garage, and there's literally hundreds of people start walking with me from the parking lot to the parking garage because that's the only shelter that's in the area. There's shopping bags and baby carriages and all, you know, dogs. There are a lot of dogs there, you know, pets, and we all start walking there. And you're really trying to wrap your, I was trying to wrap your head around it. And then at the same time, your heart's skipping a few beats because the images of the air raid strikes are very fresh in my mind. I've just seen the images coming from the east and from Kiev and from Mariupol. And so trying to wrap your head around all of this at the same time was very interesting. Also, while you feel like you're in some sort of movie because the air raid siren's going off, which doesn't seem like that's something that's real. It's very hard to explain. But we made it back. And um, this is one of the moments I actually go back to quite often um, and think about. When I got home, and I'm very proud of the Ukraine entry and exit stickers on my passport, um, I went back to Grady, and my first day at work, I was getting out of my car. And everything is familiar but unfamiliar all at the same time. And I think you know what I'm talking about when you've had an experience that really changes your outlook and your worldview about things It's familiar, but everything looks new in many ways. And as I got out of my vehicle on this first day back at work, I was grabbing my backpack, and I could hear a sound, a very high-pitched sound, very much like the air raid alert. And I literally froze for a split second. I could feel my heart rate go up, and I it lasted for just a split second. But in that split second, I had enough time to think, that sounds just like an air raid. And I stopped, and I was going to reach for my phone to see if there was an air raid alert. And I realized... I don't need to do that. I'm in Atlanta. And it, it made me really think because I was only there for four weeks with only three true missile strikes, although we had multiple alerts, only three true missile strikes. And it had already sort of hardwired itself into my brain. And I say that because our brothers and sisters and many of the other Ukrainian people are still going through this every day. This is their reality all the time. And the shelling doesn't stop. And I I realized how much that had affected me with just the short time that I had been there. And the other thing is, you know, I instantly grabbed, I have an app where I can see where the air raid alerts are, and I knew where my friends are at. And so most of the fighting, as we now know, is in the east, and this is a picture of Ukraine, and this is the Donetsk regions and the Luhansk regions. So where did everybody wind up? So at the top, I have pictures of the medical students that we taught. Um, because after the EFH closed, they sort of scattered around different areas. And Anna Kay, I had two Annas that I was um, friends with and was able to teach. Anna Kay and Andriana actually stayed um, in Lviv and were working with some of the local hospitals with Samaritan's Purse. Um, and they had given me some Pasca while I was at the EFH. And then this is a picture just about a week and a half ago um, of them out and about, and they sent this picture just saying hello and um, let me know they were doing okay. But they've continued to work with Samaritan's Purse in the local hospitals, doing burn care teaching and wound care teaching for the nursing staff. Um, And so they have developed a curriculum to sort of help with the local nurses with that. 
And then Anna V, who's circled over here, sent me this photo. She continued to work with Samaritan's Purse. They ran an ambulance service for a little while. Um, they had had an ambulance donated and then money donated for an ambulance. And so Samaritan's Purse ran the ambulance service to transport some of the sicker patients or patients needing specialized care out of Ukraine to Poland where they could reach other European hospitals. And so Anna sent me this photo because they got slowed down one day in their little ambulance caravan by cattle crossing the road as they were heading to Poland. And so this is what she's sort of been doing. Dimitri was one of our medical translators, um, which I met very early on. And I'll be honest, I've tried to contact him several times and have been unable to. So he's been in my prayers just for safety. He actually is a dentist um, in Kiev and had been displaced. And he found out about Samaritan's Purse and the EFH at the church where he was staying as a refugee or an internally displaced person. And his family... He had been in Kiev for about eight days. He and his family had been hiding in the basement for the entire time because initially the shelling and the onslaught of, onslaught of Kiev was very real and very intense. And he decided after seven or eight days, he had two young children, that this was not good for his children. And he took his wife and two children and drove them to Slovakia across the border. And, and his wife and two children were there. And he, of course, could not leave. So then he stayed in Lviv at one of the shelters set up by the churches and through the church, found out about the EFH and came and volunteered as a translator. So very, very interesting to hear all of these people's stories of how they wound up in this EFH. Um, and Dimitri has since gone back to Kiev to work, and I'm not sure what the status of his practice is. I actually reached out to him this last week to see if I could get a little more information. But he was very moved by the EFH. Dimitri is also someone who, um, I, I'm not sure he really possesses a faith of his own, but was also very quick to confess that he noted that the atmosphere was very different in the FH than anywhere he had been. And so we just pray about seeds that may have been planted in people's life about the gospel. Another person um, that we met while there was Sasha. And Sasha is not medical. He's actually a translator and has one of the highest certifications um, for English proficiency within the European framework. I don't remember all the names of it. Um, but he was an excellent translator. He's also um, a self-professed atheist, um, having grown up um, sort of in a um, in a very atheistic family, and so uh, had no faith of his own. But he asked me and multiple other people about God many, many times, and. I even reached out to Brother Barry. We provided him with some resources. I gave him a sermon of Brother Paula Fontaine's. We actually, I gave him a sermon from um, Brother Vladimir and Donetsk um, about kind of coming to Christ and salvation um, and shared with him a few other resources. And he told me at one point that he felt like the seeds of faith were starting to grow in his life. So I don't know exactly where that will go either. He is subsequently deployed to the east and the front line since um, the EFH is closed, and he's actually working with the Ukrainian military. Um, there's a Westerner who has come to help the Ukrainian military train, um, I believe American by nationality, but that's completely off the record. We can't say too much about that. Um, but he was helping translate that, so um, he was serving to work with the Ukrainian military on that somewhere in the uh, Kharkiv region. Kate, um, who you see here was circled, was actually a fully-fledged physician when I met her. She's a pediatric gastroenterologist by training. 
Um, and afterwards, um, I found out she's actually from Kiev and was an internally displaced person. She had also found out about the EFH um, through the radio announcement and came to work with us as a translator. I talked to Kate just last week, and here she is doing training with some of her trainees. And here on the right-hand side is a coin removal. Um, kids swallow coins even in wartime, and you have to go fish them out sometimes. And so that's what she's doing. And this sort of made me laugh because it's like, well, it's a little bit of normalcy even in the midst of something so chaotic. But when I reached Kate, reached out to Kate, she sent me this. And I'm going to take the time to read it because... This is just really recent from Kiev, and she said, A few weeks ago, I was going to my workplace. I was listening to music, reading a message from my friend, and smiling. And the road to my work runs from Metro Station, which below she's attached pictures, through the city and also through Military Hospital. It's about a 20-minute walk. When I was crossing the road, I noticed two white cars with an inscription 200, and it's a military code which is used to referring to the transportation of military fatalities. And then I saw relatives meeting these cars in black, and all the way along, I was crying. We are trying to live, and we are trying to smile, but then we meet the heroes, thanks to whom we have the opportunity to safely walk to work, and we can no longer honor them. When will it end? I know that God is in control, but how to live life and how to plan. And I just thought, you know, this is a little bit of what she's facing in Kiev every day, and they're not on the front line necessarily getting shelled now, but they're seeing the consequences every day. And just a reminder from her that this is still very real and going on. And then the last person um, that I'll update you that I've also spoken to here in the last week is Roman. Roman was an anesthesia resident when I first met him, and he was about to finish off his residency and be a fully-fledged anesthesiologist. He graduated the month after I left, and within one week he deployed to the front line. He had volunteered with a group called the Hospitlers, and this is a group that is specializes really with paramedics and pre-hospital medicine, and their goal and mission is to evacuate mostly civilians, but sometimes soldiers who have been injured in conflict. So it started after um, the Crimea War started back in 2014-15. You guys may be familiar with them. Um, and so he volunteered with them. He didn't even tell his mom he had volunteered with them because he <laughs> I think he knew she would be worried about him going to the front line. And so he deployed um, the week after he graduated his residency and went to the front line. And of note, his dad and his brother are both um, in the Ukraine military. This is them in the ambulance, actually, and you can sort of see a little fuzzy there on the top picture that they're transporting a patient. This is Roman here on the left and one of his colleagues, and you can see they're wearing body armor. When I say they're on the front lines, they're literally on the front lines. Um, he went to a city called Bakhmut, which is maybe three to five kilometers, maybe less now from the front line, um, and that's where he was working. Generally, the physicians work as the receiving um, receiving patients at the hospital. So this is what the ambulance is, and that's Roman there receiving a, um, a bunch of patients that the paramedics had just went and grabbed and brought back. Um, and this is their little signage and their motto that they go back by for the sake of every life. And here's Roman working on a patient that they've brought him. Um, on July 11th, there was an attack on Chasivyar. I say it correctly, um, in which a apartment building was struck, and I think there were almost 50 fatalities at last count. 
about nine, eight or nine people were removed from rubble, and there's actually a video of them removing one of the patients that Roman ultimately took care of. Um, and if you look here on this side here, this is the stretcher with the patient and the paramedics, or the rescuers here actually bringing them out. And then these guys back here in camouflage are actually the hospitalers getting ready to transport the patient to the stabilization point. So Roman actually works in Bakhmut in the smaller hospital, gives them blood, does emergency surgery, whatever they need to do, and then they transfer that patient for a longer trek, about two hours, to a much bigger hospital where they have more resources. So he sort of works to stabilize and then transport the patients. Um, that was July 11th. I watched the news, of course, with great interest ever since I've been there and even before. But as I watched, I noticed that the front line, after several Donetsk and some other things had fallen, and they were getting closer and closer to where he was at. And I kept talking to him about it, and I'm like, how's it going? How you doing? And he would say, you know, there's artillery constantly, and they're shelling. It never stops. And it's fairly rhythmic. Like, every hour there's things going off. And he said he got often hear the, the ground shaking somewhere nearby him. Um, but he himself had never really seen it, but he was close enough to where you can hear it just constantly. And no exaggeration, it never stops. On July 27th, there was talk about Bakhmut, and it was coming more and more into the news cycle. And, of course, I now knew where the city was. And then on July 31st, I got a text from Roman that says, they bombed our hospital with MRL, whatever that is, and artillery. And he, then he immediately said, I'm in another city and everything is okay. We texted back and forth a few times about, um, did he get the patients out? Was everybody evacuated? There were no casualties related to this. Um, but this is just how close he is to the front line. And the hospital itself had taken fire. And there's a couple of the pictures of this. So this is one of the rounds of artillery that came through. This is the front sign of the hospital near the front door. Um, and then he sent a couple more pictures, and you can see where the rounds went through here. And then um, over here. There we go. <clears throat> and then the hospital itself was hit um, by a rocket attack as well. The last bomb was very accurate, so it was definitely artillery. They bombed the new part of the hospital, thankfully, at the time when it occurred. He was in the hospital, but he was in the old wing, and so he was able to take some of these photos. <clears throat> This is one of the videos he sent me of some of the um, damage. And this is one of the hospitalers' vehicles, and you can see the gasoline leaking out. You see the shells and artillery that took out the windows in the vehicle itself. And Roman filmed this stuff, and then the ambulance windows are blown out, and there's a few rounds through the actual ambulance. And I actually silenced this. Can you turn the sound on now? Okay. At the very end of this, you can hear another round of artillery go off. So this was they're very close to the fighting and definitely felt like the hospital was somewhat targeted by this. Whether however the artillery or rockets or bombs got there, they definitely became um, endanger themselves and in direct line of fire. So they all evacuated out of that hospital. So as I thought about all of these things, and, and I just want to sort of close with this one thought, 
I really came back to this story, and I've thought a lot about this story since I've joined Samaritan's Purse, because this is, of course, what they base their vision on and their purpose and sort of their their goal for the organization. And I really like it because the lawyer gets up and he's trying to tempt Jesus, and he says, "Master, what do I do to inherit eternal life?" And you, and he, you know, and Jesus says, "Well, what does the law say?" And he's like, "Well, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, and love thy neighbor as thyself." And Jesus says, "Yeah, you're right." Well, then the lawyer decides to get a little bit of a, I must think it was a little bit of a smart aleck kind of attitude, right? Because he says, well, who is my neighbor? Because if I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, who's my neighbor? And I just love the way that Jesus answers him because he describes the situation. The story is so simple and so succinct. It's just a couple of paragraphs. And it destroys all the ideas that we might have that we can have bias or prejudice if we're going to follow Jesus Christ. And he boldly brings up a lot of things like crime, injustice, racism, the hypocrisy of organized religion. Like everything's sort of contained in this little paragraph. And Jesus very boldly talks about this to a very religious audience. And while he's talking to this Jew, he makes the Samaritan the good guy. And I think we just don't even understand exactly what Jesus was doing this with this. And I think it's a very clever story if you think about the context. And he just, he, he makes the lawyer come back and say that the Samaritan was the one that showed mercy and that the Samaritan was the neighbor. It wasn't the Jew. And I think it's another powerful lesson in who, who are our neighbors and who is our neighbor. And I think that when, when Jesus finally had them recognize who their neighbor is, which means the Samaritan, the Jew, these are all our neighbors, um, he closes with another remark, and I'll come to that in a second. And I want to point out also that not only did Jesus answer the lawyer's question very cleverly, he went beyond that and said, not only who is our neighbor, I'm going to tell you how to take care of them. And he he detailed how to take care of your neighbor. The good Samaritan provided medical care, right? Poured oil in, gave him wine. To me, that speaks to the body and to the mental stresses that we go through with the wine. Logistics, he put him on his donkey and took him to the local inn. Like, he provided logistics. And I was thinking about how the brothers have arranged for logistics for supply chain to Ukraine to get stuff to them, particularly early on. He provided housing and shelter and food and water and clothing. And he ministered to him and said, I'll take care of all of this. And so I think it's so powerful that he told us not only who is our neighbor, but how to take care of them. And at the very end of all of this, after he makes the lawyer tell him who the neighbor is, he says, go and do thou likewise. And I think it's really powerful. And I think that for me, my neighbors, as I've often heard, are those who have fallen in the ditch of life through no decision of their own. Nobody in Ukraine asked for the war, was involved in the war, was political about one side or the other. And yet our brothers and sisters are caught in the conflict, whether it's Russia pushing this way or Ukraine pushing that way. They're now caught in this crossfire of this war. And I was so touched looking at the videos on the website. I copied a few of the images here of the believers, and then I've copied a few of the images of the folks that I came to know so well at the EFH. And I just want to say that um, we each have a part to play And the story of the Good Samaritan was not just medical. So I emphasize heavily on the medical because that's where my calling and where my skill set lies. 
But the ministry at the EFH um, included all kinds of things. We had a carpenter, a plumber, and a bioengineer there with us to set up the tent, provide water and electricity, and I couldn't have operated without any of those people being there. And so I think that no matter what your skill set is or what you have, God can use it. He used the jawbone of an ass. He used a slingshot with small, three small stones. He used five loaves and two fishes. And I think he can use whatever you give him. And I think that that's really where I'm at is trying to stay surrendered to whatever the Lord would have and to try to serve my neighbor wherever they might be. So thank you. Wonderful. Any questions? Anybody have any questions or comments or things that they want to uh, offer up? Sister April, while she's here, anything at all? I enjoyed that tonight. Jaron? What was the situation as far as electrical power supply, running water? What kind of creative Probably, actually, I would ask Brother Sergey. I think it depends a lot on where you're at. So in places like Lviv and western Ukraine, things are very normal in many ways. Like the power grid is still in place and they still have running water. In cities like Donetsk City in Bakhmut, where my friend um, is working, um, in some of the Kharkiv region, I don't know what those conditions are, and I cannot imagine that they're great. And the other thing I would mention, and this is coming up at Samaritan's Purse a lot, and one thing you hinted at is heat and gas supply for the winter. That's not a tropical location, and they've actually ordered some evacuations. President Zelensky ordered evacuations. Maybe not as much for war zone, although they don't want civilians in the way. Ukraine's going to push at some point, and they don't want to hurt civilians any more than anything, I don't believe, and then they're caught in the conflict because Russia's pushing, Ukraine's pushing, and then they need heat for the winter. And so there's there's a lot of need there, and most of it is now on the eastern front where those two provinces are. Yeah, that's rough. Anything else? Comments? Questions? There's not many children um, left in Ukraine because if the, the wives were able to leave, uh, but the, the children that I saw were traumatized by all of this, naturally. Everything is new. Everything is different. They don't ever know if they're going to go back to life as it was. Did you, you encountered some children in the EFH, was the emergency field hospital. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience with the children there. Yeah, I myself, I saw very few children. I, I can remember the amount, I remember the children that came in because there were so few. And most of the children had, at this point, a good many of the children have been evacuated. Um, the ones that do come in are, of course, extremely, they're all a little shy, but they can be withdrawn. Um, I actually had pediatric nurses there as well, so they were very skilled at helping to kind of draw the children out. Um, and we, that is one of the things we, we worked on. And we probably had maybe half a dozen children in the time that I was there. Mm -hmm. Good. All right. Anything else? We are uh, Lincolnton. I think drinking water is drinking water available, and is it hard to find normally for people over there? I, I think again in the areas that have just been sort of 
taken over by the Russian Federation. So the Mariupols, and again, you guys can kind of speak to this, but Mariupol in particular, I don't know how much clean drinking water is available to the folks there, especially a few weeks ago. I don't know the conditions now, um, but in Donetsk City and different places where there's still active, very active fighting. And I think that's what I want to show you more than anything. And, you know, what I think what Brother Sergei and Brother Oleg are emphasizing and then, you know, Roman just evacuated from the hospital on July 31st, which is a week ago. So, or I guess going on two weeks now, it's still very active warfare. It's disappearing off of our news cycle, but it is not at all gone away. And the people there are still experiencing trouble getting water, no gasoline, heat for their homes. Food's extremely expensive, even if you can buy it. And so it becomes restricted in your ability to get it, even if you, even if it's on the grocery store shelf. You know what your problem is? We don't know what war is like, right? None of us really, probably none of us here have grown up in a war environment. I remember my mother talking about what it was like to be in the war. And, you know, maybe once or twice a year they get a bag of sugar. It just wasn't available, you know. Conditions are uh, quite different. And uh, most places, bottled water is still available, you know, in that part of the world. Um, still uh, accessible, but again, if you're in a war zone where bombs are falling, uh, clerks are not coming out into a store to work every day, and so there's days and you had to go without. And it, life is tough in in a, in a war environment for sure. Anything else? Tell you what we'll do. Um, why don't we stand to our feet and have our sister Becky, if you want to come, musicians. Uh, we'll dismiss, and then we're going to go over to the fellowship hall. We have a little food prepared, and you can mingle and, and chat with uh, Brother Sergey and Brother Oleg and Sister April and uh, talk a little bit over there with them, and uh, they have lots more uh, things to share. But I appreciate their uh, contribution tonight and their testimonies of, uh, uh, you know, how... God has protected, as far as I know, as far as I understand, there has not been a believer who's been killed or seriously wounded. Um, there's been many displaced to move around, but Brother Sergey, I don't know of any. Do you know any? None that I know of. And, I mean, that's the hand of God because uh, there was lots of believers in Donetsk. There's lots of believers in, uh, you know, different places along the coast and where some of the big fighting was. And uh, that's just amazing to me. And we're very thankful for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening, Lord, where we hear firsthand some of the testimonies and reports of things, Lord, that taking place in a part of the world where our family is located. And Lord, may we be inspired to help in ways, Lord, that maybe we don't even understand at this point. But you know the need and you know the future. And Lord, we just commit ourselves now as laborers and helpers and brothers and sisters who have a heart for these people. Lord, may you bless them now abundantly and Father, minister to their needs as you have been doing. We thank you, Lord, for these that spoke tonight. And, Father, we just uh, ask that you would continue, Lord, to have your hand upon this situation. Because, Lord, we know that nothing, nothing happens by chance. Bless our fellowship now and our food, I pray. And may we be refreshed, Lord. It's certainly something we can say. It's been good for us to be in the house of the Lord today. And, Father, bless your people now, we pray. Not only here, but all around the world where your bride gathers. In Jesus' lovely name, 
we pray. Amen. We fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus and the greatness of His mercy and love at the feet of Jesus we cry, as you go tonight we'll go right to the fellowship hall over here god bless you oh we fall down and we lay our crowns at the feet of jesus and the greatness of his mercy and love